Hey there, and welcome to Church of the Beloved's weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zoe, and I serve on staff as the production manager here at COTV. This week's message is brought to us by Elder Michael Morgan. He is preaching from Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 38, and chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So in the first century, um, there's no kind of one set of expectations for who the Messiah is going to be. They all were reading the Old Testament and knew that they were supposed to expect a Messiah, um, but they kind of disagreed on what that Messiah was, was supposed to look like, what he was going to do, what problem he was going to solve. There's some who thought that Messiah was going to be primarily a, a political savior, become a king of sorts. And there is scriptural precedent for this. If we look at Ezekiel 37, verse 24, Um, It says, my servant David, just know in this context, that refers to someone coming from David's line. So it refers to the Messiah. My servant David shall be king over them. They shall all have one shepherd. They shall follow my ordinances and be careful to observe my statutes. So the political savior camps reading this and thinking like, all right, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to be a king and he's going to overthrow Rome and kind of cast off the shackles of economic and political oppression. There are others, though, who thought that the Messiah was going to be primarily a a religious savior. He was going to come and be a priest, kind of take over the Jewish religious practice, and kind of expunge all religious corruption. And again, there's biblical precedent for this, looking at Psalm 110, verse 4, again referring to the Messiah. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So this uh, group thinks that the Messiah is going to come, he's going to kind of expunge all religious corruption, and importantly, he's going to teach the things that we, whoever we is, happen to agree with, the doctrines we agree with. Interestingly, the the Qumran community, who uh, were the Dead Sea Scrolls people, thought that there was actually going to be two messiahs, uh, one political messiah and one religious. Now, so there's a diverse set of expectations about who the messiah is going to be, but what each of them has in common is this. They all assume they kind of know what the problem is. They kind of draw a box for the Messiah to fit in and make sure that the Messiah is going to fit in that box. And when they encounter the actual Messiah, when they encounter Jesus, they realize that he does not quite fit the box that they drew for him, and they react kind of negatively. So looking at John 6, verses 14 to 15, we see an encounter with Jesus between those who expected a certain sort of a political savior. When people saw the sign that he had done, that's Jesus, They began to say, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So this group expects, here's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to become king. He's going to overthrow Rome. And they try to force him to do that. They try to take control of the Messiah. And the actual Messiah runs the exact opposite direction, runs away from them. Certainly not their ideal solution. Similarly, when the people expecting a certain sort of religious savior encountered Jesus, didn't go quite as they had planned. Uh, Luke 4, verses 24 through 29. This is right after Jesus has said, like, hey, those prophecies, they're about me. I'm going to fulfill them. And he says this. Truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There are also many with a skin disease in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so they might hurl him off the cliff. So 
all in the synagogue are filled with rage. Why? Well, it's because Jesus gets in there. He says, look, I'm, I'm fulfilling these prophecies, but by the way, I didn't come just for you guys. I came for the Gentiles as well. And he's saying, there's actually precedent for this in the Old Testament. Look at these times when we have healed only the Gentile and not the Jew. And this pushes pretty radically against what the first century Jews were expecting a, a Messiah to say. They wanted the Messiah to say, you guys, you guys are the special group. You guys are doing everything right. We're going to ignore the Gentiles. We're going to honor you. And Jesus doesn't quite fit those expectations. So they reasoned themselves, getting pretty upset. Well, we better throw him off a cliff. Uh, and so they try. Um, if, if you're unaware, Jesus does not actually get thrown on a cliff. He's, he's able to walk away safely. Um, but what each of these interpretations has in common is that they have that box set for Jesus. Now, it's not that they're entirely wrong. Jesus does care about political oppression. He does care about religious corruption. But neither group really understands the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is sin. 1 Timothy 1.15. If you're looking for a summary of the gospel, this, this might be it. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You know, at base, I think we could define sin as being a corruption in our loves. We have these innate desires to love and be loved, and, and those are good things. But they get twisted. Um, they get twisted by sin. So we have this desire to be loved, right? And that's good. But then sometimes we desire to be loved, particularly because of how we look, right? And then this twists into a form of, like, body dysmorphia. Or maybe we desire to be loved because of how great we are, how successful we are, and this morphs into careerism. We have this desire to love, and that's good. But then it falls into love of images instead of real intimacy, like pornography addiction. Or it falls into narcissism, love of self more than others. And I think when we get trapped in these cycles of sin, loving the wrong things in the wrong way, we all get the sense that something is wrong because we keep thirsting for things that aren't satisfying us. We keep longing after the next thing, the next thing, and we find ourselves empty at the end of the day every day. We have the sense there's supposed to be something more, but can't quite put our finger on it. Now, if that is our fundamental problem, then what that means is that if we try to control our own salvation, if we try to put the Messiah, if we try to put Christ into a box like these first century Jews were doing, if we try to do that, then the problem is that the box we draw for Christ is itself defined by our sin. Our own vision of what our salvation would look like is itself corrupted because we don't know what we're supposed to love. We don't know how we're supposed to love it. What we need to remember is that God is a God who's always beyond our conceptions of him, beyond our wildest estimations of who he is. And he's got a better understanding of us and who we are. And he's got a better uh, plan, a more perfect plan than we could ever imagine for ourselves. Only a Messiah who's beyond our control, someone who we could not fit into a box, can do the sort of saving that we need. We need escape from sin. And I think in many ways, we are like the first century Jews, right? We oftentimes have pretty definitive views on what our salvation is going to look like, what Jesus is going to do. But unlike the first century Jews, um, we're not by default looking for salvation outside of ourselves and some Messiah. Oftentimes, I think we look to ourselves for our own salvation. We try to be the architects of our own salvation as much as possible. And we do that by trying to kind of control the terms of our life. Most often, we recognize we have these problems that we need saving from, and we try to control our lives to solve those problems. And we desire control, I think, at base out of fear. We're afraid of being unloved, afraid of not being enough, afraid of death, afraid of loss. And this is oftentimes formed from past pain, past trauma. Some of that is intergenerational, right? You've got parents or grandparents 
who themselves experience a lot of hardship and they don't want the same for you. And so they want you to exercise as much control over your life as possible by having the right job or the right family, the right amount of security. And I think that that is a natural response to fear in a lot of ways, right? To desire control. I've experienced that as recently as right now, as I'm, as I'm up here on stage. I don't love the, the process of, of being up and uh, being vulnerable in this way. Um, and so I desire to control my situation some, which involves like, you know, writing an outline ahead of time and it involves practicing the, the sermon. And that's fine and good, but this presents a real problem for us, I think, when we try to control things that are in, particularly, in particular uncontrollable. And the world is in so many ways beyond our control. I think a lot of these are kind of hard truths. It's, they're things we don't like to tell ourselves, but they're, they are true and they're important to hear. That no matter how hard you try to look young and attractive, you're gonna get old. It's gonna pass. No matter how meticulously you chart out your career path, the economy can always take a downturn. You can lose your job, you can be laid off, and it's beyond your control. No matter how hard you track your health metrics, trying to make sure you're uh, intaking like less than 20 grams of carbs a day and maintain ketosis, uh, you can still die in a car accident tomorrow. And I think we operate under this illusion that we can control every aspect of our lives. And when we try to control the uncontrollable, um, paradoxically, I think we end up being controlled as a result. It has the exact opposite effect. Where say you want financial security, you want control over your life in this way. So what do you do? You put your head down, you go to your job, do your work, you put in the extra hours, you obey your boss. But then a few years down the road, you realize that you are just actually a slave to your job. By trying to obtain security and control, you've actually abdicated it and become, uh, you have no control over your life. You are just a slave to the job. Or maybe you wanna control your life by controlling other people's perceptions of you. You wanna make sure that they think you are, uh, you know, attractive or you say the right things, you do the right things. And when you start to value that too much, when you try to control your life in that way, you end up being controlled by other people's perceptions of you. You decide how to act, you decide what to say based on what other people want you to say and act. The more you try to control the uncontrollable, the more you end up being controlled yourself. And I think we can replicate this in, in a lot of different areas of life. And I think in addition, the more we try to control the uncontrollable, the more anxious we feel. Because we're constantly trying to prevent something that we don't have the power to stop. So my brother-in-law was born with uh, this condition known as aortic stenosis, which um, in my layperson's understanding means that one of the valves of his heart is diseased. And we knew once he was an adult, he was gonna need to get a surgery to uh, fix the problem. And so we'd be kind of been twiddling our thumbs for several years, and this year the cardiologist said that it's, it's the year he's gonna need to get a surgery known as the Ross procedure, which in my understanding is they remove kind of the diseased aortic valve, uh, then they take the pulmonary valve and put it where the diseased valve was, and they take a graft of the pulmonary valve to put it where the pulmonary valve was. So it's sort of this big open heart mix and match procedure. Uh, and naturally, I've been pretty afraid about what that procedure will, will look like, um, if it will be successful. And so I, my natural response has been to try to exercise as much control over the situation as I can, which has involved uh, things like learning about the Ross procedure, researching the doctor, uh, checking in to make sure things are going okay. And what is perfectly obvious to everyone but me is that that does not affect the outcome of the surgery one bit. No matter how much I do uh, to research ahead of time, I'm not a heart surgeon. I don't have actual control over what's gonna happen. 
And I think I've operated under the illusion, right, that there are things about the outcome that I can control, but it's made me really anxious because it seems then like if I do X or if I do Y, then either something great or something terrible is gonna happen. I put this massive weight on myself to try to control something that I have no ability to control. And it's this odd paradox of modern life, I think, that we in some ways have more control over our lives than ever as a result of modern medicine, modern technology, uh, but yet we're also more anxious than ever. Um, so despite the fact that we have better healthcare than ever, people report being more anxious about their health than ever, despite the fact that children are safer than ever, parents are more anxious about their children than ever before. And I think it's because we operate under the illusion that because our control has extended somewhat as a result of modern technology, that it's extended all the way, that we can control everything. And so I've needed to kind of intentionally reframe how I'm looking at, at this surgery for myself because really, if you take a step back, 100 years ago, this is a procedure that would not be possible. In fact, my brother-in-law probably would have died when he was born. And so instead of experiencing gratitude for just the possibility of a surgery that will save his life, that he's able to get scans ahead of this surgery by a team of doctors who are really well-equipped to do this surgery, I feel anxious instead of grateful. Last point is that the more we try to control the uncontrollable, the more empty we feel. And I think this manifests itself mostly in our relationships. So when you become controlling in a relationship, we oftentimes think of that as born out of um, some sort of narcissism or um, desire to just illicitly control other people. Sometimes though it's born out of love where initially you kind of recognize, say you're, you have a friend who's struggling with mental health, you want to help them and encourage them to uh, have the right habits. And you recognize, you know, there's things they could, they could change about their life that might help. And it's born out of love, but then sometimes that twists and becomes controlling. Actually, you try to control the other person to do X, to do Y, to do Z. But the more you try to control people who are, you know, obviously not under your control, the more you try to control them, they become less like people to you and the more like objects to you. And then everything that was supposed to be fulfilling about a relationship to begin with, the fact that there's someone beyond you who can challenge you, who can see you for who you are, independent of what you see about yourself, goes out the window because they just become an object to you. Your desire for a relationship turns into a desire for objects. So I think when we try to control the uncontrollable, we feel empty, we feel anxious, we end up being controlled. But it's the case that there is a lot of the world that is beyond our control. How can we possibly face up to that? And I think in this context is where I wanna to look to Mary. Right, so 13-year-old woman from Nazareth, the angel appears to her and says, don't be afraid, first thing. And the line I heard about this was that it's probably really scary for an angel to like appear to someone, and so it's naturally, uh, naturally one of the first things the angel's gonna say is don't be afraid. And I agree, that's probably part of what's going on. But also, I wanna emphasize how terrifying the news is that he gives to Mary, right? So Luke 1, verses 31 to 33. And now will you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You'll name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And initially, obviously, this is good news, and that's what we like to focus on. Uh, but think about it from Mary's perspective for just a sec, which is that the angel basically shows up and says, hey, by the way, you are pregnant now. Um, by the way, that baby gonna be the most important person in all of history. Good luck traveling to Bethlehem. Also, I'm not telling your parents, only telling Joseph. Good luck explaining that. Uh, it's hard news to hear. And she had no control over the message God was, was giving her in that moment. Now, obviously, I've never been in anything like that situation, goes without saying. But I would think, if I was in that situation, I would think that I would like a say about exactly whether or not I was like, going to have a kid and like when and who got to know about it. Um, 
And so there's this kind of remarkable abdication of control. And you would think that someone would respond to that with anger, frustration, anxiety. But here's how Mary responds. Luke 1, verse 38. Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. By letting go of her desire to control the uncontrollable, by submitting to God, trusting in his sovereignty, Mary quite literally brings her own salvation into the world. And not only hers, but ours as well. And I think the same sort of structure is replicated in Joseph, right? Uh, Joseph hears from an angel um, in a dream, though. So Mary gets to do some, like, back and forth to talk about, like, logistics and how everything's going to, like, happen. Joseph just gets this in a dream. The angel says, your fiancé, pregnant now, but don't worry. It's from the Holy Spirit. Nothing to, no, no qualms. Um, and Joseph has to kind of accept the social disgrace that comes along with this, right? Because his parents probably don't get all the details. And it's kind of unclear that if he was to bring Mary to his parents and say, like, don't worry, it's God in there, that they'd really, like, understand exactly what was going on. And so Joseph kind of decides to be, nevertheless, a father to Jesus, his non-son, to go with Mary and Jesus to Egypt when they had to flee Herod. Joseph is willing to say, and Mary is willing to say, when God tells them, your life is going to be way harder than you ever thought. They say yes to it, somehow, miraculously. They say, let it be your will, not my own. How do they do so? How are they able to let go of the desire to control their own lives and submit to God? Because letting go is really hard. And I think we're so terrified of what's going to happen if we let go of our tight grip over our own lives. But one thing to note is this. Christ knows how that feels. Christ identifies with that. God become man. He comes as a baby. And who has less control over their own life than a baby? And at the end of his life, he asks the father, is there any other way? Can I avoid this death? And the father says, no. This is how it's going to be. You must die on that, Christ, on that cross. And Christ drinks the cup. His reply is not my will, but your will be done. And we needed Christ to say that desperately. Because Christ is the only possible answer to our fundamental problem of sin. And we need a savior that's going to provide salvation far and beyond what we imagine salvation might consist in what we think would be the actual resolution to our problems. And he asks us to take that first step in faith. And that's difficult. It no doubt is difficult. But what is promised is this. You will no longer find yourself controlled or anxious or empty if you're willing to take that step. That if you take that step, that you, if you let go of the vice grip that you have on your own life, you're going to be granted a relationship. And it's going to be unlike a relationship that you've ever had because it's a relationship in which you will never be disappointed. A relationship with someone, God, who will provide you what you need even when you don't know what you need yourself. And it's a relationship which there is no fear of loss because Christ has got you and you have Christ. And that's something you can never lose. And normally we're so consumed by anxiety of loss of job, loss of loved one, loss of security. But you have Christ and Christ has you and that's something you can never lose. Now, letting go, of course, in this way doesn't mean you stop living. There's all sorts of areas in your life where you can justifiably exercise control. The problem, again, is when you specifically try to control the uncontrollable, things that are just utterly beyond us. And Christ, of course, still calls us to strive and struggle for the sake of the gospel. So it doesn't mean not acting. Oftentimes, it actually means acting more by self-sacrifice, by enduring pain and struggle, but it is a sort of pain and struggle where at the end of the day you feel fulfilled 
You're no longer feeling like you're thirsting for something that's not satisfying you. You're able to rest easy, to rest in Christ, to finally escape that cycle. So whenever you find yourself having a vice grip on your own life, controlled by your work, or you're anxious or you're empty, you should ask yourself, what am I so afraid of? And hear in response what the angel says to Mary, don't be afraid. I come with good news of great joy. I want to go ahead and invite the band back up. And in closing, I think we can summarize the, the gospel as follows, right? That we love that which we ought not to love. We're in a constant process of destroying ourselves without Christ. We thirst for things that don't satisfy us. And what we need more than anything is a savior who's beyond our control, who can free us from the power of sin. And that's what Christ gives us. Salvation that doesn't come from our own works, but purely by grace, a free gift. And what is asked of us is simply to accept that gift. What a blessing it is that our salvation is beyond our control. Let's pray. Thanks for tuning into this week's COTB Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us online, you can find us at cotb.life.